0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. My name is Chris Badgett, and I'm joined by a special guest, Joe Casabona. You can find Joe at casabona.org, where he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's an online educator. He's a course creator, a membership site builder, just like all of you listening. Joe's been on the show before, but I wanted to bring him back and catch up because he's had a lot going on in his online educator journey over the past year. Welcome back, Joe.
1: Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it.
0: Trying to think of where to best start with you because you've got so much going on. Um, I guess let's actually just start a little bit with your journey. In the past year or two, you've made the transition from um, freelancer or employee to like really stepping into the role of an online educator. And the way I like to position this question, I'm working on something. I use a framework called the five hats problem. And actually, right before this call, this is going to be really geeky and like obsessive, but I'm actually working on a personality type matrix, depending upon how developed people are across five categories. So like the Myers-Briggs is like four categories. Mm -hmm. This is a personality type indicator across five categories for course creators. And basically, the hypothesis of all this is that in order for a course creator to be successful, they have to wear five hats and, and somehow pull that off or build a team around their weaknesses. But those five hats are to be an expert or online educator. That's number one. Number two is to be an instructional designer or teacher. That's number two. Number three is to be a community builder. So that's like building a list before the sale, building community after the sale. Number four is being a technologist. And number five is being an entrepreneur, which is building that whole business thing and doing the marketing and all managing the team and all that stuff which is almost an impossible task the purpose of this podcast is to help people develop across those five categories you've made some moves in the past year to really develop as an expert or online educator what's that been like
1: yeah so uh well like you said i i left uh, my full-time job in june basically i was doing my online courses on the side Uh, My daughter was born and I was working for an agency and I realized like, that is too much. So what am I, what am I going to give up? And uh, I really wanted to pursue the online education aspect. I taught at the University of Scranton in-person classes for 10 years and it's something I love to do and I I wanted to keep doing it. And so uh, the teaching stuff I felt I, I had down and it was the. Uh, the establishing myself as an expert in in whatever field I'm educating in, right? Because I kind of made my bones. I, I don't know if that's like a strictly New York term. Uh, um, yeah, right. I um, I I established myself as an authority in web development, front end development, and I was switching lanes a little bit into the site builder aspect, into showing people how to build specific sites. And I thought, well if people need this course they'll buy this course and that is the biggest lesson i've learned over the last year is that no they won't they 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 don't care about the vehicle uh that gets them to the destination they care about getting to the destination and so i think that's been the biggest lesson for me is that i need to i'm i know i make good content i've been told numerous times i'm a good teacher but i need to get the messaging right to to switch from Take this if you wanna learn something to I'm solving your problem for you.
0: There's a framework there that my friend, Danny Any like made me realize he has a concept for it called um, the old model of education used to be just in case, like we're gonna build up this library of knowledge just in case you need it later. But the new model being just in time. And like you said, they're looking for like a really specific result from that education just in time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And when I launched my first successful course which was uh like an introduction to beaver builder the biggest piece of feedback i got was why do i have to take this course in order and i thought it was i i took the you know we're going to learn something over a semester approach but they didn't want that they wanted how do i build a home page with beaver builder they 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 paid for the course basically just for that video There's
0: another counterintuitive insight based on that comment from a past guest, Ellen Martin, where she said course completion isn't necessarily the be all end all. Like maybe somebody needed this part of your Beaver Builder course and they only finished like 20 percent of the course, but they're happy as a clam. (laughs) Or there's also project based learning, which is what you're talking about. Like, let's go build a homepage, which is different from a feature tour. So talk a little bit more. Like, how did you evolve your your teaching style?
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, that was, I knew I wanted to do that from the outset. Like my first, my first tagline or whatever was learn by doing. So I wanted somebody to come into my course, even if they had no experience. And by the end of the course, they had a thing, whatever, a Beaver Builder site, uh, a podcast website, an online course. And I still develop my courses that way because I feel it's, the best and applicable way to be like here here's how we do this exact thing which you need to do to have this full site uh but you're right it, it's it's not uh course completion that's something i really had to like let go of right like i'm like oh yeah like 20 percent of my students complete their course that's like 10 percent better than the average or whatever but it, it really doesn't matter right uh because
0: Are they happy? Are they starting freelance businesses? Are they building better websites for themselves? Like that's what matters, right?
1: Exactly. And and going, you know, going back to this lesson that I've learned, if I'm solving whatever problem they have, that's the metric of success. And so now I'm trying to, instead of pouring over like how many students have actually completed the course, I reach out to them at various points in the course and I say, Hey, how's it going? What are you working on? Share with me what you're building. So that I could see like the fruits of, of your labor and, and of you taking this course.
0: That was awesome. So you guys see what Joe just did there is he went from the expert hat and he put on his instructional designer hat. And now let's put on our technologist hat and talk about page builders. That's a great course. And I've always said that I should say I've just noticed that the best training courses about software are never made by the companies that make the software. They're made by somebody else, like a power user like yourself, which I find interesting. So I'm just noting that observation. But yeah. what um, page builders, like a lot of people watching this, uh, a large percentage of them are using a page builder or thinking about it or want to pull off a complex design without being a techie. What's going on in the page builder market? or page? Why are page builders so popular now? Can you help us understand that?
1: definitely well uh, as i said earlier i am a front-end developer i'm a web developer and i used to be very purist like i'm not using a page builder i can build this by hand we used to be that way too by the way <laughs> yeah changed. right yeah. like and but tools have evolved they've gotten better beaver builder for example is great now instead of spending 10 hours to build this beautiful landing page, which by by the way, design is not my forte. Like I know certain fonts that look good and like I know colors that clash, but like I'm not a designer. I can take a design and make it a working website. Uh, But with Beaver Builder in like a half hour, assuming I have the content, right? Writing the content takes forever. But uh, assuming I have the content, I can build a beautiful page in 30 minutes. And then that allows me to focus on the core of my business, right? And I think that was another. You know, you mentioned the different hats, and as a technologist, as a web developer, I'm like, well, I'm a web developer, so I need to build everything myself. That's not what I want to focus on in my business anymore.
0: You're not freeing up capacity for the other hats by it, by staying by leaving eighty percent in your your already existing strength.
1: Right. Exactly. You know, if you're a chef who starts a restaurant and you spend all of the time creating, like in the kitchen, how are you going to pay your employees? How are you going to come up with new menus? How are you going to attract customers?
0: Yeah, that is a that is a really excellent point. Um, and if people are interested in that Beaver Builder course, what's the best place to go?
1: Uh, if you go to creatorcourses.com uh, slash shop, you'll see the uh, the way to purchase it there. It's called Up and Running with Beaver Builder. And very soon, it's getting an update to, to the latest version of Beaver Builder.
0: Awesome. And while we have our technology head on, you have a Gutenberg course. Um, Did you co-create that course?
1: So I have uh, two, well, three, but really two different courses uh, there. One I co-created with uh, Zach Borden. That's called uh, Theming for Gutenberg or Theming with Gutenberg. Uh, Basically, it's how to prepare your WordPress themes for Gutenberg. So that's uh, very techy. We get into code and design and CSS and stuff like that. My other course, which Zach gave me the idea for, was an introduction to Gutenberg. Um, And there's kind of two flavors of that. There's just the introduction. So if you're a user and you want to know how Gutenberg works, you can take that. If you're a freelancer and you're like, how am I going to prepare all of my clients for Gutenberg? uh, There's Gutenberg for freelancers, which includes the how to use it. And then there's a lot of extra content just for you, checklists and email scripts and stuff like that.
0: That's awesome. And that's really needed. You know, it's a big change. It's a big transition in the WordPress world. And, you know, we need leadership and education to just, you know, make the transition. So I'm really glad you've been working on that. What just general advice from your course or just kind of a high level in general, do you recommend people be aware of to get ready for Gutenberg or, or, You know, if they're worried about it, to not be so worried about it or just make the transition successfully?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there is a lot of fear around it, right? Because it's a big change. I think the best thing you can do is on a staging site. So, like, not on your live site, um, install the plugin, enable it, and test out a few things. So, like, one of the nice things about Gutenberg and the team around developing these tools is they've made they've made sure that you won't just break your site by virtue of enabling the plugin so if you go to old content it'll be in a classic editor block right and that's the big change gutenberg is moving from just like a big wall of text a la microsoft word to a flexible uh, format where each content is its own block and you can move those blocks around and and create richer more flexible layouts and so just right off the bat you have an old blog post it's like killing it in seo or whatever uh if you never touch that it never changes if you visit it in the editor it's still not changed because it's in a classic editor block you can make text changes and things like that and then you can click a button and convert all of that content to blocks that's where it could break depending on how you've built the site and i've noticed that like if you have a lot of custom HTML that's when the post or the page will break so uh, I recommend that I also recommend checking out uh, Gutenberg ramp it's a plugin by automatic and the WordPress VIP team and you can turn Gutenberg on for only specific post types so posts pages uh, courses or uh, sp- specific pages by ID so if you know my all of my pages are like custom html or built with a page builder i don't want gutenberg touching that you can turn that off using gutenberg ram
0: very cool that's some solid solid tips so it's really not so scary
1: yeah (laughs) and
0: and there's backwards compatible stuff in play and if you just want to not deal with it you can not deal with it either so right
1: yeah there's the classic editor too so like when 5.0 comes out if you're like i don't want to think about this right now it's black friday it's the holidays (laughs) or whatever yeah uh you can turn on the classic editor and still use 5.0 without, you know, check out the the editor after the holidays or whatever.
0: That's awesome. Well, I appreciate that heads up. Well, let's go back to our instructional designer hat. And I noticed you had a a WordCamp where WordPress TV video about never assume when teaching WordPress or let's just say teaching anything. What do you mean by that? Like you build a whole presentation around that. So I think there's some instructional design wisdom in there.
1: Yeah, that talk was brought to you by a real life example of me assuming my students knew something. So, I was teaching at the University of Scranton. One of the courses I taught was an introduction or like a, it was called computer literacy. And it's just an introduction to computers for all students, basically to make sure that they have some basic technical skills as they move throughout the rest of their college career. And I decided that it would be a good idea to teach them WordPress, right? Um, The course was getting. Long in the tooth, a little bit, uh, you know. Like it was written by professors in the '90s, and then like never really changed. And so I decided every semester I would reevaluate what I was teaching based on current events. And I thought everybody should at least know how to make a blog, make a, a website, maybe. And so I had them make websites on WordPress.com. And I was like, so you have posts and pages, and you know, posts are like articles, and pages are just content. And I just said that very casually. And one of my students, bless her, she raised her hand and goes, I have no idea what you just said there. And I'm like, all right, let's take it back. Uh, and so that's, that was the impetus for that talk. I made assumptions because I had been using WordPress for 10 years or whatever. And uh, I'm talking to students who didn't care about WordPress up until that point. They maybe used Facebook or Instagram, whatever the popular social media Platform was at the time, and but they didn't.
0: And those they, don't have posts and pages.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. They don't have yeah. posts and pages. Yeah. Uh, but and so I assumed, right? They're familiar with some technology, and so they'll get this. And so what I ended up doing was going to BuzzFeed and saying, "Here's about. This is a page, right? It never changes. This is content. If we go to the front page, we see the most recent articles. These are posts in WordPress." Uh, But it was just a big lesson about, um, I made assumptions because I'd been using something for so long that I assumed everybody knew it. And the story I tell in the beginning of that talk is, uh, let's assume you have a baby who's trying to learn how to walk. You don't just look at the baby and say, come on, just put one foot in front of the other. It's easy. Like that would be insane. And you're being mean to a baby. So uh, that's, uh, that's the kind of thesis for that talk.
0: I call that the expert's curse and it's it goes back to a concept called beginner's mind which is really hard for an expert if they've moved a lot of their fundamentals and foundations or or there's a lot of fundamentals and foundations inside of those that they that it's easy to forget about. So that that's great. Um I want to go back to the expert hat and also part of the business hat which is marketing. Um so course creators are really busy people, especially if they have a membership site and they're building new content or mini courses and doing all these other things besides just one course. Um, so they're like, they, but yeah, it's good practice to do some content marketing, to have some free, not behind a login, Google index, indexable content. What I found personally, which you can probably relate to, is that podcasting for me is easier than writing a 2000 word blog post and you know i can engage with other people have cool conversations and bring out good ideas so i want to talk about podcasting as a strategy in the expert industry but also as a um you know as a marketing tool um so i guess where to start on that is you've grown what are some tips on just growing adoption of your podcast like listen numbers and downloads like how have you done it
1: yeah that's a great question because for a while I didn't have an answer right like people would reach out to me and just be like how do you get so many downloads and I'm like I don't know like well, I, think I-,
0: that, I think that is okay like well yeah. I just talk about cool stuff and I, it's for a certain type of person and lo and behold people like it I mean that is a strategy
1: absolutely and and but as I thought about it more I, I have a couple of. Thoughts, right? Uh, and one is consistency. Uh, I publish an episode every Tuesday morning at 3 a.m. Eastern Time, right? Which is like why 3 a.m. I <laughs> randomly picked that time, yeah, and I found it did better than other randomly picked times because, like, when I first started my podcast, I would like refresh the. D- I still do it sometimes. Refresh the downloads page and just see how many things are how like how many people are downloading it right now, and. Uh, you know, I would check it at certain times throughout the day and I just found that like 3 a.m. uh midnight Pacific, I guess, was I don't know, a good time for a lot of people, right? Like it was good for people uh overseas in, in later time zones, um, but it was like out early enough that people might be able to listen to it on their morning commute here in the United States.
0: Yeah, that uh, makes
1: sense. Yeah. So that's that was I'm just like every Tuesday, 3 a.m. Publish the podcast.
0: I just that's- want to note that that is really powerful. As a guy who also listens to podcasts a lot, which is one of the ways I keep my expert um, sharp and current, and I'm always i li- I'm a lifelong learner myself. If you actually go to podcast search engines, they're not that good, and a lot of times, if you're looking around a certain topic, you'll find stuff that's like really old, or a podcast popped up and they did like five, 10, 20, 30 episodes, and then stopped. That's actually really common. What are you up to on how I built it?
1: As we record this today, my 100th episode came out. Awesome. Yeah, Uh, which is really exciting. And it's, I I mean, it's because I've had like great guests and great support and people tell me they love the show. Like, I don't know if I'd be able to continue doing it if if I didn't have the, the great support.
0: Yeah. Any other tips on like, if somebody's wants to grow to just be aware of or think about?
1: Yeah. So, uh, like I said, consistency is really key. Understanding how people listen. Like that's something I've learned, uh, over the the two or so years that I've been doing this is that most people are going to listen in their car on their commute during their morning routine, right? They're probably not listening in the middle of the afternoon when they're doing like deep work, right? Because they're, Either they're not in deep work or they're not listening to your show.
0: And I just um, want to confirm that for me personally, as a listener, when I get up in the morning, for me, I have a big routine with exercise, walking, or running, or whatever. And I I go to my podcast and I load up the queue for what I'm going to listen to. And I know, like certain podcasts I listen to. Oh, it's Monday. I'm going to get this guy releases on Monday. This gal releases. We're here. So I I like I kind of know it. I know when it's coming.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I do the same thing. I go for a two mile walk every morning, and I know depending on the data is I'm going to get my Apple fix or Pat Flynn's going to teach me about, you know, yeah. uh, smart passive income. And, uh, but, and, and watching my numbers, I've noticed the same things, right? When I wake up or the first time I check around 9am, uh, I've, I have a large amount of downloads and then it slows throughout the day. And then right around five or six o'clock, I see another spike, uh, because people are doing their, their commute home. So,
0: and I just want to I just want to add a note on there. If you're looking for a content marketing strategy, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or podcasting or whatever, one of the cool things about podcasting, and this is not an original idea for me. I think I heard this from Clay Collins, is that it's what's known as portable content, which is there's not much competition there. There's audiobooks, there's music, and there's podcasting whereas so this is when people are moving they're driving they're exercising they're doing the dishes you can't like it's not easy to like watch a website or watch videos while you do these things so there's just a lot more elbow room in the portable content so if you're like debating like just just think about that and it's you know just the relationship you get through audio and the earbuds and all that stuff
1: yeah at at podcast movement uh this was kind of confirmed for me like Podcast listeners are really loyal listeners, right? Because you can't just stumble upon a podcast, really, and start listening to it. Uh, you have to dedicate time to listening to it, and you have to know what podcasts are, and you maybe have to have an app to listen to podcasts, right? That's maybe the curse of the podcast and how it ha- why it hasn't seen insane growth yet because there's such a barrier, but that also creates... Super lawyer loyal listeners.
0: Yeah, that's a that is an excellent point, and I agree that podcasting is actually in the early days. Like, I think it's going to show up in cars, and maybe it already is. I don't know, but it's just going to get better and better, and easier and easier for publishers, which is a good and a bad thing. Like, I hear I, I'm my podcast is several years old, and. You know, I have a somewhat intricate setup, but then I hear about tools like anchor.fm that make it easy, I guess. I haven't used them, but what are your thoughts on, do you have a podcasting course, like how to? You mentioned podcast websites earlier.
1: Uh, So I don't have the how to podcast course. Yeah. Uh, Because like Pat Flynn kind of has that market cornered and like there are other people who have that content already. And I wanted to focus in on what I'm really good at without kind of rehashing things and so I do I talk about kind of the mechanics of podcasting um, and I have that free content about how I started my podcast or what you need to start a podcast uh, but I don't have a full course taking you from like no idea or a small idea to to launched podcast
0: Right on. Well, from the outside looking in, it it appears as though one of the things that helps helped you and your story make the transition from working at an agency to an online educator is you 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 pursued some podcast sponsorship, which helps you know, which really helps as a content creator. And uh, what advice do you have if people have a niche podcast? I mean, their their course or their membership is going to be on a niche topic. If they decide to commit to podcasting, which I think that is really important, like you have to commit, like don't start a podcast if you don't see yourself doing it in two, three years later. Um, but how do, what? what's the general advice you have around getting sponsors and paying sponsors for your show?
1: Yeah, so uh, the educator in me needs to tell you that it's not easy, right? Like people are like, this is how you get, like do these things and you'll definitely get sponsors. You are asking people for money. And uh, so it's unless you find somebody who just can like print money, it's going to be hard to do that. But these are things that have worked for me. Early on, I had guests talking about something, some product, uh, and I would reach out to those people and say, hey, I just had a guest. I named them. They were talking about your product. I was wondering if you'd like to sponsor this episode to get a little, you know, some nice cross promotion.
0: I like yeah. that because that's like results in advance. Like you're already getting free publicity here. Do you want to pour some gasoline on that?
1: Right. If yeah. That's what it, you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to reinforce what my guest is already saying? Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's worked for me a bit. Uh, and then the other thing is I reached out to people that I knew in the space who trusted my work. Uh, so I have a network. I've built a network over several years. And I reached out and I said, Hey, look, I'm starting, I've, I've started this podcast. It's doing okay. I'm really dedicated to it. And I was, I'm looking for some financial backing. Are you willing to sponsor a few episodes? And people who knew me are like, Yeah, sure. Uh, the, you know, we can do a few. My, I was priced at like 99 bucks. So for a couple hundred bucks, they were able to sponsor a couple of episodes for me. Uh, so so uh, there's the reaching out to people who are already kind of being promoted. There's reaching out to your network of people. And then when you get to a certain size, uh, I think something that's really important is making a list of companies that jive well with your audience. So do your best as soon as possible to understand your audience. This is something that I didn't do very well in the beginning because I didn't think the podcast was going anywhere. So,
0: so, so your podcast is called How I Built It. Yes. What, what did you later understand about your audience
1: so uh later i understood that um uh, i thought i was going to be talking mostly to site like people who might want to buy my course right and that was really the the original scope for the show so site gonna, builders yeah exactly. builders. right uh, as i evolved in my line of questioning in my guests i realized that i was talking a lot to developers uh, and business owners and people who wanted to get into the development and business owner space. So I-, I learned that over time, the kind of things that they liked, the the episodes that resonated really well for them.
0: Are you talking uh, about like entrepreneur journey type stuff?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because when
0: because when you go into how I built it in your episode, some sometimes it's technical, but it's also like this entrepreneur developed a product from nothing, right? Yeah, it's the entrepreneur's journey episode.
1: That's exactly right. How did you come up with the, this idea? How did you research it? and Then how did you build it? What worked? What didn't work?
0: And why are you still alive today? These are valuable yeah. like lessons.
1: Right. And, and I get like, those are the most interesting conversations on the show. Like, this wasn't working for me. And so I pivoted and this actually did start working for me. Uh, and so like the people who are like, I didn't do a lot of research in the beginning. I just did it. And here's what I learned along the way. And then the people who are like, I did a ton of research in the beginning uh, and here's how it helped me and here's how it hurt me. Like those are really fun conversations uh, because every, every product is different. And I, I interview a lot of like, just do it kind of people. Like I just did it and see, saw what happened. Um, but as, as far as sponsors go, once I understood the people who were interested in my subject matter, I made a list of companies that I thought these would be good people to reach out to. Then I created a pitch deck um So I have oh,
0: like a PowerPoint presentation
1: exactly, yeah. yeah, that just talks about what the show is. I have stats on general podcast audience, which I think you can get from um Nielsen, yeah, uh, so they'll just tell you like these are some commonalities among everybody who listens to podcasts. I have stats about who my listener is, how often the show gets downloaded and downloaded, and then I sell. On the cost per acquisition right so uh, most big podcasts will talk about CPM or cost per milli which is cost per thousands of downloads that only works if you're ge- if your show is getting downloaded tens or hundreds of thousands of times right because then you're going you're casting a wide net and you're hoping one or two percent convert
0: so that is that the big sponsors like Casper mattress and Audible and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: those people that you hear on every podcast, right? Squarespace, uh like those are the ones who are casting a wide net and going it's just new
0: media. That's not yeah. it's not radio, it's podcast land.
1: It, yeah, exactly, right? But for someone who's getting 5000 downloads, 3000 downloads an episode, I've been told that 5000 downloads per episode in the first 30 days is like like is where you can kind of go beyond your network, and and other people who might not know you personally will will. Serious- I
0: appreciate that. So that's a that's a good metric to know. So yeah. if you're getting over five thousand, you're starting to. That's like a level.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And and I still drive home, uh, the cost per acquisition. Right. So, I say, hey, my podcast audience is loyal, and they listen to my recommendations. I'm an influencer. I don't just have reach on my podcast. I have reach through my blog. I have reach through my YouTube channel. And I will promote you in all of these places in hopes that maybe it's fewer people than what you would get from sponsoring stuff you should know. But it's a higher percentage. It's a better return on the investment for the listener. Yeah, exactly. Um So I put together a pitch deck with all of that. I put together some packages and then I have a slide about me, right? Uh, Because again, I'm trying to sell, I'm not just selling my podcast. I'm selling me. I'm a front end developer. I'm an educator. I could talk about your product. I can use your product and tell you why it's good. Tell them why it's good. And uh, I think that's been really helpful. I've been able to land a couple of, uh, of sponsors that way. And I just started doing that over the summer again, after I learned about the pitch deck idea from uh, from podcast movement.
0: Very cool. So are you actually getting on like a Zoom call and doing a pitch or are you just having a podcast sponsor page that has the deck there so that they can basically self-pitch?
1: <laughs> so Yeah, so it's basically that, right? Uh, okay. You know, because people who are marketing are probably getting lots of questions like that. Uh, lots of people asking for money, especially if they already sponsor podcasts. Yeah. One thing I'll do is I'll say I like I'll listen to podcasts and uh Backblaze was a good example of this. They sponsored my show for a couple of episodes. And I heard them sponsoring other podcast episodes and I'm like, "Hey, I am like in the WordPress space, lots of developers, cloud backups are amazing." And they're like, "Yeah, we'll do a couple." And so um I it, it's a lot of cold outreach at yeah. first. Uh and so yeah, I made a list I start the, the things that I already use because then I won't just send like my standard cold email. I'll say like, hey, I use your product and I love it and I can tell my audience why I love it. And so it'll be a better pitch. Um, and then the last thing I'll do is about a month after their episodes run. Uh, and this is important, right? Because of the 5,000 downloads within 30 days metric. I reach out and I say, hey, it's been a month since your campaign. I just wanted to follow up and let you know those those episodes were downloaded this many times, uh, and so uh, that's what we're looking at as far as conversion goes for you. Uh, if If you have any advice for me, uh, things that you think I should have done better or would like to reevaluate, let me know if you want to continue and do a few more episodes, I, I'd be happy to give you you know like a 10 percent discount uh, across a couple of episodes so. Um, just reach out to them and say like, Hey, remember me? Like we spoke two months ago and uh, I'm just letting you know how those episodes did.
0: Brilliant. And I just want to highlight as an expert yourself and as a, you know, a business person, as a marketing person, you're getting outside the building, you're building, you're going to conferences like podcast movement and learning. And then most importantly, you're taking massive action, which is, uh, which is really awesome. Well, because you're a technologist, I save that hat for last, since that's where you're the strongest, in my opinion. Look at, from the outside looking in.
1: That's it. Um, that is accurate. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so I'll let you know I'll, once I finish my course creator personality type matrix. I'll I'll come up with a name for your type, but I don't I don't know what it is yet. But the, right. uh, I need to build like a quiz that people can take to kind of evaluate or whatever. But the um. One of the things I heard you say in a, in a conversation we had recently was uh, you tried Sean Hesketh from, from WP 101, his method of doing screen share videos. I think anybody who's been in WordPress for a while, if you've come across Sean's WP 101 videos, they're awesome. They've always been awesome. He has a commitment to like redoing them constantly as WordPress evolves, but they're just super crisp, super quality. Sean was on this show, and uh, we did interviewed him about his setup and everything. But basically, if I understand correctly, he kind of writes the audio script first, and then comes back and does the, um, you know, the uh, the actual screen recording part of it all, and edits it all together. If one thing's for sure about course creators. Not everybody does it the same way. People develop the signature style. That didn't work for you. Can you tell us why it didn't and then what you ended up doing as, a, as like a website builder educator where we're doing screen sharing type videos?
1: Yeah, definitely. And and uh, I did this, this set of videos for Sean. Uh, so we did one, he looked at it and then gave me feedback. And the exact feedback he gave me was he tried to do it like me. I hired you to do it like you. Um, <laughs> And he gave me two really good analogies about that. Right. And, And one is when you're singing a cover song, uh, if you're into singing, right. They say, don't try to sing it like the singer, sing it like you would sing it because that's the way you'll sing it best. Uh, and then he also talked about the story of David and Goliath, right. And how, uh, David tried to use like some other person's armor instead of the tools he was most comfortable with. Uh, so those stories really resonated with me and, uh, it didn't work for me because Sean has a very different cadence than I do. Right? He can he speaks and and projects a certain way, and uh, you probably noticed at this point that I generally talk very fast. I do things while I'm talking, and that's the best way I educate. So uh, instead of kind of, uh, Sean will rehearse his videos and then come up with the scripts. That doesn't work for me. Uh, So what I'll do is I will narrate what I'm doing as I'm doing it. And that comes across much more natural to me, probably because that's how I'm used to teaching in the classroom, right? I'm not reading off of a script in the classroom. That would be super boring. Uh, So I'm doing something and I'm telling my students what I'm doing as I'm doing it. Did Uh, Did you end up editing? Totally. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Especially So what um, would you cut out? If something doesn't go as I expect it. Uh, So sometimes if I think I know what I'm working with, uh, I just I won't do like a dry run first. Um, And if I click something and like it doesn't work, I'm like (sighs) so I got to reset everything. Uh, I'll, I'll also if I say if I notice I'm saying um a lot I will reshoot that part. But for the most part, especially when I'm like, if I'm doing a programming course, I keep certain mess ups in, right? Like if I code and a bug, uh, an error gets thrown, I'm not going to cut that out. I'm actually going to say, okay, so we got this error. Let's see why we got this error. And that was uh, maybe another thing that contributed to my style because coding doesn't rarely. Ever goes perfectly the first time that's so funny you
0: say that we did a, uh, a like a, a short interview with Chris Coyer about making educational videos and he said that was his number one tip like don't take out the mistakes because it's part of how people learn or else they're going to feel weird when things don't go perfectly all the time
1: yeah that's exactly right like how it's going back to assuming uh, while teaching right I taught So I taught a training at the University of Scranton with a coworker and we had very different styles. He would basically say, Oh, how do you add a post? You just go to post, add new post. It's so easy. And I'm like, they're here because it's not easy. Right. And if things are going perfectly smoothly for us and not perfectly smoothly for them, they are going to think they are the problem. Uh, And so same thing with coding. If I like code this magnificent theme perfectly, on the first try, and then someone hits an error because, I don't know, they forgot a semicolon, something I still do from time to time, uh, more than time to time, um, they're going to think that there's something wrong with them. Like, I was, I thought I did exactly what Joe did, and, and I'm, I'm getting errors. I'm frustrated. I'm not going to continue this. But if you keep the error in, they get to see that, well, A, you're not perfect, and B, now they get to see how you solve that problem.
0: My business partner at Lifter LMS, Thomas Levy, I remember a long time ago when we first met, he said that when we were started to interview other developers and stuff like that, he, his main thing was like, they need to be good Googlers. And basically, like, if you're not copying and pasting error messages into Google, like, that's one of your most important tools in in, in development. So uh, and just being curious when things go wrong. I mean, it's just part of the process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would get so mad in, in college when I got a test that told me to write code and it had to be like syntactically correct. I'm like, nobody writes code like this. <laughs> nobody ever wrote code like this. Why are you asking me, a novice, to do this right now? Write code on paper and assume it's right.
0: <laughs> that's, that's such a great, um, great point. Error messages, is, is, it's part of the learning process. Another tech issue... Um, before we go today uh, from our pre-chat was and I bring this up because I actually hear rumbles of this when I talk to course creators where there's the big Mac PC debate and some people like they want to do live streaming but they, they want to use certain tools that are, are you know, more like Macs or, or more like um, uh, old Microsoft deals or whatever and they just they're not sure Mac PC uh, my business partner, Thomas, who I just mentioned just recently got an Android phone and I'm like, Oh no, like oh, what's going man. on here? But
1: uh, I'm like, bubbles, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, you know, a big video guy and podcaster and course creator. I got to edit videos and stuff. Can you tell us about what's going on with you and your tech stack, your hardware stack?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let me start with this stuff I like, which is my recording. Yeah. Uh, I, as I said, I do I narrate what I'm doing, right? So I used to have a um, one of those DOS keyboards that were like super clicky. Got rid of that
0: because uh, of, of audio noise. Back then. yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Like oh, you're gonna do this, clack clack clack. Like that's <laughs> that's an annoying learning yeah. experience. Uh, now I have a Rode Procaster. I have the arm, so it's not in my face. I'm not like reaching around my microphone. And I have a a preamp uh, to the left of me. And that has a noise gate on it. And a, a bu- I mean, a bunch of, I'm like underselling this. It's, there's a bunch of settings, but the noise gate has been the most valuable to me uh, because any sound below a certain decibel, it'll automatically filter out. Uh, so I don't need to worry about like typing too loud or my office shares a wall with the nursery. Yeah. My daughter was teething and screaming and I was on a call. I'm like, can you hear that? And they're like, no. <laughs> okay. So perfect. Yeah. Uh, so, that's my general setup uh and i will i will tell you advice that my father gave me over many times uh in my life he said buy cheap get cheap and in february i thought i'm gonna get a pc it's half the price of an imac pro i've always wanted an alienware and it's just as good and I don't want to knock PC people here, right? Because people who have been using PCs their whole life, they know uh, they know a bunch of things that I don't. I haven't used a PC since 2008 or 2007. But the main tool that I use on my PC for video editing, which is why I bought this PC, is Camtasia.
0: And why and is Camtasia better than ScreenFlow?
1: So there is no version of ScreenFlow for the PC. Oh, okay. I think I would probably happily still have or keep my PC if I, had, if I had a program that didn't crash when I tried to do basic things.
0: So you're saying Camtasia is not being stable for you on your PC?
1: Right. And I don't know what it is. I know a lot of people in the education space, like in the higher ed space, who love Camtasia. Uh, maybe they're on an older version. Uh, I record all of my videos in 4K super uh, high
0: quality yeah.
1: yeah yeah, because that's I mean that's where every like as we're sitting here, Apple just announced a new MacBook air that is four k that has a retina display, right so like wow. even though bottom of the barrel computers now are getting uh retina four k high fidelity screens, and I want my videos to be watchable on them uh maybe Camtasia can't handle four k uh but I've not been happy with that experience. Um, I've also spent a lot of time trying to get like feature parity between my Mac and my PC because I use tools like OmniFocus, uh, and you know, whatever else is only for iOS and Mac. And I'm like, what is cross platform? What has a web interface? Um, so I will be getting an iMac pro before the end of the year, uh, because I have just sunk a lot of time into trying to get things right. Or like I recorded a 10 minute video. Uh, last week, I I applied a noise filter, which Camtasia does really well. I mean, they have it; it's nice. It, it easily removes white noise, but it crashed just doing that on a ten-minute video. Like, I, I expect better than that. So, um, especially if I've paid like over two grand for a machine. So, um, I cheaped out, cheaped out a little bit, uh, and so it's it's been frustrating. And I'm moving back to the Mac.
0: So your dad's sage advice, buy cheap, get cheap was uh, was good in this case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think maybe
0: no, that's not that cheap. I mean, that's the thing. That's why I Course Creator. we got all this gear, all this hardware. I mean, we, we don't have an unlimited budget, most of us. So I understand why.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and again, maybe I mean, maybe there's actually something wrong with this PC. Like maybe there's a hardware issue that I'm not detecting anywhere except Camtasia. Not, the case. not likely, but possible, right? Um, but again, that's not really something I want to think about. I built computers for a small time in high school and college, and I did not like doing that. So I don't want to worry about that. You know, a lot of people are like, you can't open the body of a Mac to do whatever. I don't care, but I don't want to open the body of a Mac. I just want it to work. So that's my, my impassioned speech about my, my hardware stack. Uh, that
0: that yeah. is awesome. Well, Joe Casabona, thank you for coming back on the show, and thank you for sharing your course creator journey as we explored the five hats and your experience with all that. Joe's at casabona.org Can you spell that for us and let us know anywhere else people can connect with you on the web?
1: Yeah, so that is C A S A B as in boy O N A dot org. Uh, so I'm over there. That's uh, that'll be kind of like the. Uh, changing station for all of my the exchange station or whatever for all of my other things, my podcasts my online courses. Uh, And I'm on Twitter and most social networks as Jay Casabona, so you can reach out there. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me.
0: Thanks so much for coming, Joe. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I had a blast.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of LMS Cast. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I hope you enjoyed the show. This show was brought to you by Lifter LMS. The number one tool for creating, selling, and protecting engaging online courses to help you get more revenue, freedom, and impact in your life, head on over to lifterlms.com and get the best gear for your course creator journey. Let's build the most engaging results getting courses on the internet.